Hey, today we are continuing on. Um, this will probably be three or four sermons on this topic matter. I think I've kind of narrowed it down to where I'm going to be. Today we're going to continue looking the month of January. We've been preaching about what it means to be a member of, of Carville Bible Church. And the reason I'm doing this, as I've said before, is I think sometimes people forget what it means to be a member of a church, forget even the priority of it, what it means. So we're looking at it. So I've been going through our declaration of membership, what sometimes um, I call it covenant membership. You'll see that slip out. Um, and so, but we officially call it the declaration of membership. And there's a couple things. When someone says they're a member of, of our church, what they're saying is, number one, they confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Number two, they're saying they've publicly declared this confession by being baptized. We spent the last two weeks talking about those two. Today, we'll do number three. I affirm the Carville Bible Church statement of faith as a declaration of truth as taught in the scriptures. We'll look at that today. Number four, we'll look at this today. I aspire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord as taught in the scriptures. And by the way, you'll see how number four is informed by number three, right? Our, your statement of faith actually helps you to actually live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Number five, we'll do this next week. I appeal to the membership of Carrieville Bible Church to hold me accountable to the truth and manner of life as taught in the scriptures. Number six, I dedicate myself to the earthly mission of making disciples. I will seek out the lost, help them receive Jesus as Savior, assist them to be conformed to his likeness, and encourage them to be effectively engaged in his service. And number seven, I pledge to protect the unity of the church to support this fellowship financially, in prayer, and with my physical presence. So those are seven things. And I think sometimes we forget that, that it, those of us who've been members for years, sometimes we just need a rehearsal of it. And I can tell you honestly, in my soul, I'm desiring that, and we don't even know how to do it as elders. We've talked about it. We've kicked it around to where trying to help ourselves solidify who's still a member. You know, what's really hard when you do church, and, and I'm just telling you, can I just be honest, the pain of my soul? Am I allowed to be honest? Are you allowed to be honest when you preach? Okay, good. I didn't know if you were allowed to or not. Um, so people come, they go through, they become members, you present them publicly to the church. And then, for whatever reason, God does move some people to other churches. God moves them to another place. God may move them to another church where God wants them to use their giftings um, in that church. Um, or, you know, but sometimes what happens is you never know as a church body. Someone just kind of is gone. Um, I wish that we had some mechanism to where we could actually help the body know when someone is, is when the Lord is move, moving them, where, you know, I'm just telling you, this is my honest, if I just, you know, I'm just trying to be honest. You know what I wish? I wish that if God was going to move somebody from, like, our church, you know what I wish they would do? I wish they'd sit down with one of us elders or sit down with us elders and say, hey, my giftings and how God has gifted me, I think it can be used at this church. I've had a conversation with their pastors and elders would you pray for, for me, and then we could pray for you, and then it wouldn't be all these weird things that happen when you see somebody and you hadn't seen them in a while. Am I making sense? Like, I just wish that there was some way that we could do that. So um, one of my ideas and goals has been, I did this last year, and I'm doing it this year, is I'm just re-preaching through in January church membership, what it means to be a member of a church, wanting people to kind of, one, rehearse it so they can kind of realize but then two, just kind of reemphasize the importance of it. But then maybe if, if, if God's calling you to another place, let us pray for you. Like we're all on the same team. We, 
We, we really are, right? Like, for instance, across the, I mean, like with Harvest Church. Harvest Church is, um, they're a brother. They're a brother church, right? I mean, like we care for them. We believe in their mission. Um, they're a good doctrinal, doctrinal church, got great people. There's no, um, there's no competition. Some people think it's like that. If you think that, that you're in competition with other churches, you just have a lot of pride. Um, and God tends to humble people with pride, so that's not the case, right? But I will say this. There is an emphasis in the text of Scripture that your church, you have a responsibility to your church, your church has a responsibility to you, and how can that church, that church must know who's in and who's out. I've even sometimes have discussed with our elders of, hey, maybe we should yearly just purge all the membership and have everybody rejoin each January so that you would know who is in and who's out just because sometimes people lose heart in the middle. Are y'all making sense? By the way, I'm just being honest. Not saying we're going to do that, right? I'm just being honest. You know, and, it, and here's the reason. It's the pain of going, sometimes the most frustrating thing is you don't know who you're responsible for anymore. You just don't. Because people tend to never say a thing. They don't want to let you know. They kind of go somewhere else and then you're trying to go, who am I answering for before the Lord anymore? So sometimes you just want that as a, okay, as a pastor. Who am I still responsible for? I mean, this person, you know, hadn't been here in two years. Like, am I still responsible for them? Are y'all catching my drift? Like the, the pain and trying to figure out. Also, I mean, I, I want you to know who you're responsible for, right? I want you to know who you should pray for. And so anyways, I, I preach on this last year and I want to do it this year because I do think there's something going on in our culture, and I want our church to be different. I want people to actually know that church membership means something, right, and that you are valuable to this church. And uh, the, we, we don't operate by this kind of silly thing that happens in our kind of culture where it's like, um, you know, you're, you might hit church like once a month or once every two months, and then you still, I would say, man, if that's how you're kind of operating I'm, I'm telling you, you're not in step with like what our church is doing. You, you don't know. And here's the pain on my soul. I'm just telling you. Um, I'll, you. You know a lot of people, how they visit a church is they come, they kind of hear a message, and if they have like a warm and fuzzy feeling, that may be their church, right? Are y'all tracking with me, right? Um, that's how people visit churches. I would tell you, terrible way to visit a church. Let me tell you how to visit a church, right? Terrible way, right? Now, don't get me don't get me wrong. Should you actually go to church and see what it's like? Yes. But don't make your soul evaluation on that. Here's what you do. If there's a church you want to go visit, call the pastor, elders of that church. Have a conversation. Look up their doctrinal statement. Look what that church believes in, right? Ask some people. Maybe you have some friends that go to that church. Ask them about that church. Ask them for the real truth about that church, right? Not all the sanitized good things, right? The good and the bad, the ugly, their doctrinal statement, what they believe. Call the pastor of that church. Sit down or with elders or whoever is in leadership. Sit down with them. Ask them about the church. Then go visit the church, right? Then you'll have a context and a, um, you know. Now, don't sit here and go, well, Nick, you just told me that I can't invite my friends so they sit down with you. I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you that at all. But this is for the general person. Let's say the Lord were to move you to, let's say the Lord were to move you to the promised land of Michigan, right? Isn't that the promised land? No, that's not right. Texas is the promised land, right? 
They think so, yeah. If you ask them, that's what they'll tell you. So let's say the Lord decides to finally answer that prayer you've been praying for so long. Lord, take me to Texas, right? And, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to go there, and you're going to go, I'm going to try to find a church just like my church. doesn't exist. And then what you're going to do is, if you do it like most people, you just kind of visit a church, visit a church, visit a church, hoping to feel some warm and fuzzy with just coming in, hearing message, song, and all that kind of stuff. And then, and I would, and you know what a lot of those people do? They just keep bouncing and bouncing. You know what would be better? Actually, like, try to get to know the leadership of that church. Call them. And guess what? If a leadership won't sit down with you and talk with you, then that's probably not a church that's going to shepherd you anyways, right? I'm so pained by how many Christians I've met in our area. Pained. I'm not outside of our congregation. Pained. And here's what they'll say. They'll go, I mean, they've, they've moved here. I mean, people transplant and move to Carryville all the time. They really do, right? They'll transplant, they'll come here, and then they'll say, man, we've been here a year. Man, we have visited church after church. We just can't find a church. I'm thinking to myself, you can't? Like, man, there's a lot of churches around here. There's a lot. But you, if you just visit one on a Sunday morning, you're, I mean, that's one part, but not the whole part. Right? Now, why am I doing all this? Because I want you to be a part of a church. I want everybody in this room who can hear my voice and whoever's online, I want you to hear me. God wants you to be a part of a church. God wants you to be a member of a church. God wants you to be an active and living part of that church. God wants you to glorify him by being a part of that church, which means it's not just coming in and just being Sunday morning. You are, you are using the gifts and abilities that God has given you, right? And, and you are a part of that church. You are known and be known. You, you serve and are being served. You are a part of it, right? It's, it, are we getting the drift? Like, that's what God wants for your life. God might providentially put you in green pastures where you might be a shut-in, where you might be in a nursing home and you can't be, or you might have a providential, some kind of providential reason that you can't be in with physically with a congregation. But outside of that, God doesn't want you online. He wants you in a local church, right? Doesn't have to be Carville Bible Church. Carville Bible Church isn't the church for everybody. But I think it's a great church. What do you think? So, that's why we're talking about this. I think it's important. I think sometimes I just want to have this each January some kind of at least renewal in the soul of this is my church. Now, don't get all worried and think, oh, well. They're gonna, we're going to just have complete membership renewal in January, right? That's just me floating ideas, but man, I've, I just want to know who's in and who's out and who I'm responsible for and who I'm not responsible for. And I hope you get the drift here that at Carville Bible Church, we want to care for you, we want to love you, but also, we are not your enemy. And if God is going to lead you to a new place, would you let us pray for you? Man, don't disappear. Especially like when you've been loved on. I mean, hopefully, if you're a part of this church, you've been loved on. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest pains that I've seen in God's people is um, someone's been a part of our church and they're loved on and cared for, right? And then, for whatever reason, they're somewhere else, but they never tell anybody. No one ever knows. Is, is this, you know, and then you'll see people in the church almost get a little discouraged as if. The efforts of loving the pe- like didn't mean anything, right? Or, you understand that? So I want to protect you from this. Just because the church serves you doesn't mean you should have some 
long-standing loyalty to him, the Lord may move you to a different congregation to use your gifting abilities for God's glory and to be an act of service there. So he may do it. But I would tell you this. We're all on the same team. We love each other. And like actually have that church love you in and love you out. Right? Y'all get this? So... Let's jump into a couple of different scriptures this morning um, as we kind of prepare and, and jump in. Uh, today we're looking at the statement of faith. And on our, I said this a while ago, I affirm the Carville Bible Church statement of faith as a declaration of the truth that's taught in the scriptures. That's one of our core of being a member here. You believe our statement of faith. By the way, you can access our statement of faith. I've, I've discouraged a lot of cell phone use during our service, right? But if you want to look at it on your cell phone, right, and you can get it from our website, you can look at our statement of faith. I'm going to read it for you if you, if you want to. Um, but I would say this, the statement of faith, number four, after it is, I aspire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord as taught in the scriptures. If number three is there, number four will be there, Right? And I'll show you this even in the flow of Scripture here in a little bit. Now, we have this statement of faith that, as I'm going to read it to you here in a little bit, and it's nothing new. Churches have had statements of faith for the longest time. But every statement of faith is basically meant to keep unity in the church, protect from error, all right? That's what a statement of faith is trying to do. It's a way, it's kind of a, a, a short way to organize some key teaching thoughts so that the body has unity and is protected from error. We've seen this all through history. Even in the early church, we see this. Um, we're not going to have time to turn to this, but if you're familiar and you're a Bible reader, even in the early church, they had this kind of stuff, right? So for instance, if you've ever been a person who read Acts 15, right, where the Jerusalem council, remember they if, you're, if, you know, if you've been reading the Bible, you kind of know in, in Acts chapter 15, the Jews and Gentiles, they're coming into the church, and all of a sudden, these Jews are saying the Gentiles need to be Jewish. They need to be circumcised for salvation. They need to keep the law of Moses like a Jewish person to be saved. And they start to have, among the Jerusalem council, uh, council a, um, a big issue with that. And so they talk, and they debate about it, and they kind of get to the end of the debate in, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council with the elders and leaders and, and the apostles, and they basically come to the idea, which is true, that wait a minute, no, a Gentile is saved by grace through faith. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to take on the law of Moses as if they're a Jewish person. They, they, they are not under that, right? And so, but they do tell them a couple things. They say, hey, um, don't commit fornication. Don't eat meat uh, that, uh, that has been strangled. Don't eat meat that's been offered in pagan idolatrous worship, right? Why would they tell them that? Because that would have been something that would have not been good from the law of Moses. That would have been something that would split their fellowship with other Jewish people. And they were trying to promote unity in the body of Christ. Um, also trying to make sure that they don't want them still hanging out in the same pagan places. Now what's interesting that, so that was kind of a statement of faith. That was a short statement of faith, what they were telling them in Acts 15. Now, it's interesting. When you get to Paul in Romans chapter 14 and 15, and you get to Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he basically talks about some of those issues of actually table dining and eating and eating meat sacrificed to idols. And what's very interesting is Paul doesn't draw back and say what the Jerusalem council said. 
when he talks about these issues of liberty and eating meat offered to idols and Jews and Gentiles being together and not eating meat offered to an idol if another brother in Christ has pointed it out, he says that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that, you know, don't eat it for conscience sake, right? Don't be offensive to another brother in Christ. Glorify God and love him first, right? Notice, if you read those passages, Paul quotes from Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. What he doesn't quote from is authoritative, as infallible is what the Jerusalem Council put out, right? Although the Jerusalem Council said some great things, really good things, really great things, right? You shouldn't commit fornication, right? Um, you, you shouldn't do that, right? Um, so, but when he appeals to what they should do, he actually appeals to Scripture all throughout. So the reason I'm telling you that is this. Even in, Genesis, in Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem Council. There is, hey, this is how life should work, Gentiles relating to Jews. But when Paul starts actually giving direction, he doesn't appeal to the statement, he appeals to Scripture. Now, here's what's happened in church history. Um, especially, I come from the fundamental independent Baptist world, and we almost had no appreciation for any kind of creeds or confessions. We were kind of like, hey, the Bible is all we need. And that's actually very true. But the problem sometimes is the Bible is a really big book. Did anybody know the Bible is a big book? Are you all aware? Okay. Some of you were aware of that. And so... What's really good through history is sometimes there's a need to simplify in a condensed way core beliefs that will guide you, that will keep unity in the body of Christ and protect you from error. So in church history, you've had creeds and confessions and even catechisms that have helped with that. And a lot of the evangelical world trying to get so far from something they might think is more Catholic, like creeds and confessions and catechisms, they just punted on that altogether, right? I think even for me, most of my discipleship and training um, in ministry has not had a great appreciation for creeds and confessions. Um, I mean, been, been okay with statement of faith, but, but really, even in my fundamentalist kind of background, a statement of faith was almost something you just had because you were supposed to have it on some document, and you just kind of said, we go to the Word of God for doctrine and belief. Now, the truth is this. Do we go to the Word of God for doctrine and belief? Amen. Yes, we do. But there, we also can't negate there is a help, a necessity, that's, that, that it's good for Christians to, to condense their beliefs that are essential for salvation, that are essential for their fellowship, that are essential for unity, that are essential to protect from error so that everybody can walk together in a way that is pleasing to God and loving each other. And so that's what we have when you look at our statement of faith, when you look at another document called our doctrinal distinctives. We're trying to create a way that here's what the Scripture says. We've kind of condensed it in a knowable form. This helps us to have unity and protect from doctrinal error. So we're going to go through that today. Now, a while ago, um, I've said something about creeds, right? And you might have heard the word creed. And no, that's not the 80s band creed, right? And for those of you that are from the 80s, that's not who I'm talking about. But creed, we've talked about a little bit. It's the Latin word credo, right? That's what it comes from. And it just means I believe. I believe. That's what a creed is. It just means what you believe. And creeds are typically very concise, short statements about what someone believes, about what a church believes. They're really short and concise. I'll show you a couple of them, right? In your Bible, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I'll show you in the scriptures. The scriptures have creeds or I believe statements. In church history, there have been creeds. We've, um, a couple weeks ago, David quoted the Apostles' Creed. Uh, was it Apostles' Creed? Was it Apostles' Creed? Yeah, it was Apostles' Creed. You did a couple weeks ago in part of one of our songs, right? Uh, in my fundamentalist background, we had no appreciation for creeds. It was, you don't need a creed, you just need God's Word. And I would say, well, a creed should reflect God's Word, right? Um, but we just didn't have an appreciation for the, the layers of where we're at today, the foundation we're built on. So just so you understand, um, where we're at today, there's been a lot of pavement laid down where we're at as Christians today. There's been a lot of work done. Um, there's been a lot that have gone before us and have paved the way for how we do things. So look in chapter 6, verse 4. You all know this. But this is actually a creed, a creedal statement. This is a I believe statement for Israel, right? Um, and still good for us today, right? Good for everybody. But this was their creedal statement. This is a doctrinal statement. It was short. But it says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is what? One, right? That's Israel's creedal statement, right? That's, that's something that Israel was known to do that set Israel apart from every other nation, every other religion. Every other religion was polytheistic, but not Jewish people, Right? Which, by the way, let me just give you a side. This is kind of on the side. This is free. This will be a small rabbit trail, right? Not an elephant trail, a rabbit trail. You know what's interesting? People say, well, you know what? Christianity was made up, right? And, and people got bamboozled, and Jesus never resurrected. But you know, you know who the first believers were primarily? Monotheistic first century Jews. Who, their creed was, there is one God, Yahweh. So for Jesus to come in and say, I'm God, was huge. And for them to follow him after the resurrection is huge. That means they must have been convinced about something. Because if you were Jewish, first century monotheistic Jew, who have been quoting this, told this, knew this creed, and then you decide to start following Jesus, you would have had to been convinced that he actually was God, right? You just, and you didn't do it because you were just bamboozled because it was a good thing. Because you lost your livelihood. You lost a lot of things in life, right? It, it, this is the thing about Christianity. If you were going to make up Christianity, if you were co- going to complete, make some kind of like Illuminati kind of design, right? You, were te- you did a terrible job, right? Why would you ever start this religion among monotheistic Jews? You'd never do it. That'd be a terrible thing. But yet it did. And because Jesus resurrected, these monotheistic Jews had no choice but to say, my Lord and my God. So here's the creedal statement. Back in it. That was the rabbit trail. Hero Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Now, by the way, remember I told you statement number three of you believe the statement of faith, Carver Bible Church, number four, right? You remember number four on our statement? Number four says, I aspire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, as taught in the Scriptures. Number three, the belief of number three actually will inform the behavior of number four. What you believe always determines your behavior. I'm going to say it again. What you believe will determine your behavior. It really will. It really will. It will come out. Like if you're a person who's angry and angry a lot, what that reveals is your belief. It reveals that you think you're God. It reveals that you think you're better than God. It reveals that you think the work of the cross is that 
that the work of the cross is, is you deserved it, right? That's what happens when people won't be forgiving. So notice in chapter 6, verse 5, notice this. So you got verse 4. You see it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh is one. That's a creedal statement. That's an I believe statement. Now look what happens in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Everybody see that in verse 5? You know what we see? I aspire to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord as taught in scriptures. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your sons. You shall speak of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. We see the idea, the prerequisite of, of family worship and devotion. He shall bind them as signs on your hand. You shall be as phylacteries between your eyes, right? They'd write scriptures in pieces of leather and attach it to their skin, attach it, put it on themselves like, uh, like a piece of jewelry. Verse 9, you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. They'd put scriptures uh, on their doorposts. So here's you 5, verse 4, that's a creed, old statement. Verse 5 through 9, you see this is actually the lifestyle that happens as a result of it. So when you hear the word creed, it's an I believe statement, but all I believe statements actually determine a behavior statement. And the way we behave is a direct result of what we believe. Oh, yes, it's important what we believe. That's why we have doctrinal statements, statements of faith. Even when you look in church history, you have what are called creedal statements, right? They, 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 they tell you what you believe. And by the way, in church history, creeds sometimes would be said before baptism, right? Even some churches do it today. Some churches, even in church history, even today, they have certain a, a creed that they'll say. They'll like there's some churches that they'll say the Apostles' Creed, um, or they'll have other creeds that they'll say before they take communion, just as reminders of fundamental truths, right? That are trying to bring unity to their body and correction of doctrine. But it's been around a long time. But also in the New Testament, we see creeds, I believe statements. Do this. Go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Now I'm about to tie in. Just hang with me while I'm talking about creeds and confessions. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, you see this. Even by the time of the New Testament writers, there started to be new like creedal statements being said among the early Christians. You can see it reflected in the inspiration of Scripture that many Bible students will go, it seems like this statement that's being said, this is something that's something of a creed that's going around that Christians are saying. Many of them, but here would be one that many student, Bible students would say, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 through 6, and you can see it. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, right? That's a, that's a creedal statement that actually in church history, even still today, some Christians will actually read that and recite that before baptism or taking the Lord's Supper. It's creedal statements. I'll show you another one. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That when Paul writes this, it's assumed that he's speaking something that already among early Christians have become somewhat of a, a creedal statement. And you go to chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you start in verse 3. Paul says this, For I delivered to you a first importance, which I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom remain now, but now have fallen asleep. Most would say that, especially verse 3, 4, 3 and 4, that, that that was really a creedal statement that was going around with early Christians, a I believe. So we see this in church history, statements of faith. Like we have a statement of faith. We have, I'm going to talk to you more about it here in a minute. But those are things that have been around a long time. It's not something we've made up. And a statement of faith is not the same as Scripture, but a statement of faith should be informed by Scripture, right? And statements of faith are actually good because they help to kind of narrow down core essential beliefs that are essential for your life. Now, we have also something besides creeds called confessions. You ever heard the word confessions and wonder, what is that? Is that... Is Nick going to turn his office into like a confession booth where I come in each week and tell him my sins and then he tells me to pray for the Cowboys five times and then, you know, you know, well, today I may do that. I think they're going to need lots of help. Now, a confession is taking a creed, which is tip, creeds are typically shorter statements, right, of belief and going longer with it, okay? Typically, a creedal statement is going to tell you what's essential for salvation, that's a creedal statement typically, right? So I would say our statement of faith is really a statement of the essentials for salvation. And then you have what are called confessions in church history, which are typically much more longer and robust. And they usually help to define un unique peculiarities among different denominations in churches, right? So for us, we have a statement of faith, which is I would compare almost more to a creedal statement. And then we have what's called our doctrinal distinctives, which I would almost equate to a little bit, sometime of a little bit of a confession of faith for Collierville Bible Church. But in church history, you have confessions. You have confessions, and typically are a lot longer. They actually still protect from, to protect from heresy, but they give the unique distinctives of a group. There's been different types of confessions, and if you're in the 9 o'clock this morning, um, uh, Austin read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, uh, which really is tied in historically to the Presbyterians. Um, and then you have, other, you have lots of other different confessions, right? You have the Second London Baptist Confession, which is Reformed Baptists of 1689. And you might be thinking like, I never heard of these confessions before. I'll tell you what, I never did my first 10 years of Christianity. In my fundamental independent Baptist churches, we would have said, throw these out the door, no need for these, you have the Word of God. And I would go, well... Actually, sometimes people need the Word of God to be organized in such a fashion that they can have unity about belief and actually be able to protect the doctrine of salvation and orthodoxy. So that's why you have these confessions. They protect. And by the way, most confessions and creedal statements actually come about because there's some kind of error. Every time there's an error, there's a new statement that's being made. For instance, even currently in our current world, we have new statements of faith coming out for instance, there's one called the Nashville Statement. It's a statement that, it's a confession that addresses human sexuality and gender roles. Did y'all know that that's becoming an issue? Are y'all aware of that? Okay. Hey, I told, uh, we had dinner eight last night uh, at my house, and um, I told them some good news that I heard that the, and, and, and by the way, I'm not saying this to be mocking, I'm just saying this really like, this is how confused we are. So I'll, I saw that Miss Universe and Miss America, which honestly we never cared about anyways, right? But that, that institution has always been owned by men, right? And, but now it's no longer 
um, they, they have a new owner. And this owner got up on the platform recently and said, Miss America, Miss Universe is no longer owned by man. It's now owned by a transgender woman, right? And then I was watching that thinking, wait a minute. I, no, it's still owned by a man. Like, you know. So when things like that happen in a culture, now we would go like, well, no one needs to tell us that. We have the Bible. Yes, we do. Infallible. But sometimes Christians need statements that organize things because they keep getting attacked. So the Nashville statement came out, you know, some time back. And it was a statement for professing evangelicals to go, here is what, let's systematize God's word and see what it's, and and systematize it so you don't get drug away with a statement like, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a woman when I'm really biologically a man. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Like, that's why statements and confessions come out. So they're not bad. Even our church, if you were to look, go to our uh, website or to our discovery, we've adopted some new statements. For instance, um, a couple years ago, the idea, and it's still around, of critical race theory and intersectionality. Um, you know, um, Karl Marx and Marxist ideas. We felt like that was being something that was being attacked in Orthodox Christianity. So there was a statement of faith that came out called the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. So we taught the church, we read it, and then we adopted it as a, as a statement of faith, as a confession for our church to understand what has God actually said about the issue of justice and the gospel and race and ethnicity. So, and, and, but sometimes you have to have those kind of things. That's happened all through church history. Confessions and creeds, right? Even we as a church have kind of our own creed, which I would almost look like our statement of faith, and our own confession, which would kind of be our doctrinal distinctive. I wouldn't put it one-on-one, but I'm trying to give you a parallel, but trying to give you some historical appreciation. And the reason is you keep hearing us talk about things like creeds and confessions and catechisms. So I'm just trying to kind of layer out some history and tie it into where we're at. By the way, you also have catechisms. You've heard us say the word catechisms, right? That word just means to teach or to instruct. It's something that basically all these creeds and confessions, there was a need to make it to where people could be taught this. And guess how they did it? Catechism. They taught it. And they taught it through question and answer format. Part of the Reformation in the 1500s is these guys exploded the idea of catechisms. They created catechisms. Like from the Westminster Confession of Faith, you have a catechism. But you have the Reformers making up different catechisms, ways to teach creedal and confessional doctrinal truths so that they are accessible. And they did it through a question and answer format. Actually, the Reformation is often called the golden age of catechisms, right? Martin Luther wrote catechisms. John Calvin wrote catechisms. I told you about a guy named Richard Baxter, who's kind of the prince of preachers. He would actually, every member of his church yearly, he would go by and actually do catechism with them to make sure they understood confessions and creedal statements, right? So it's been used for that. Uh, Parents for generations have used catechisms as a way to make sure and bring doctrinal, um, trying to make sure their kids understood creedal and confessional statements. Maybe someday we need to create our own catechisms based off of our own statement of faith and doctrinal distinctives. That's, that's kind of what happened a lot in history. They'd take those foundational things they believed and they put it in question and answer formats for teaching and instructing. So now that I've laid that out to you, let me walk through some of our statements of faith and tell you. 
There's a long history of churches doing this. A long history. It's not new, right? We call it a statement of faith, but there's, it, it really is just like a creedal statement. And here's some things that we believe. From the scriptures, we believe these nine essential things. This is our statement of faith. This is our creedal statement that we believe. And we would say this. This is essential. Like any Orthodox, anybody that's going to call themselves a Christian, they are going to believe this. And number one on our statement says, We believe in the scripture of the Old and New Testament as verbally inspired by God and inerrant in the original writings. We say original writings because I don't have Paul's first Corinthian letter anymore uh, because it actually can't exist. It would have already shriveled up and decayed into ash at this point, right? It, it had gone through oxidation. You know, you know that like paper doesn't last forever. Are we all aware of those kind of things, right? So if you bury money in your backyard and you're hoping that 200 years from now your relatives can dig it up and use it, probably not going to work very good for them, right? It's just going to kind of turn to ash heap. So we don't have those original writings, but we have copies and copies of those original writings. So we say they're inerrant in the original writings, and we believe that they are of supreme and final authority for life and faith. So we believe that God's Word um, is verbally inspired by God. We have accurate copies of copies that we still have God's Word laying in our hands. And just honestly, we've got close to 27,000 manuscripts just of our New Testament alone. We have handfuls of other ancient literatures, right? God has given us so much evidence. Now let me point you to a scripture that you're familiar with, 2 Timothy 3, 16. This is our stake in the ground, people. Man, this is our stake in the ground. 2 Timothy 3, 16. This is how we as a church can have a statement like that has to be based off of something that's inerrant, right? So that statement that we believe, that creedal, that statement of faith that I just told you, we believe it. Because of this scripture. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is, what does it say? God breathed. God breathed. And it's profitable for teaching. That's to know what's right. For reproof. That's to know what's wrong. For correction. To know how to get right. For training in righteousness. How to stay right. Verse 17. So the man of God may be equipped having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God claims itself to be verbally inspired by God and inerrant and the final source and supreme source for life and godliness. It declares it itself. So we have a statement that reflects what the Bible says is true. That's the first thing. We believe that this is God's Word. We believe it's the final source. We trust it. We believe it. The opinions and worldview of man does not compare and does not hold weight to thus saith the word of God, right? And by the way, don't ever be a part of a church. Don't be a member of a church that doesn't believe that, right? If you see a statement and that church says, we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament contain God's word, and that's what they say, don't go to that church, right? That's a, that's a bad statement. We don't believe that the Bible contains God's word. We believe the Bible is God's word, right? So you may wonder sometimes, like, how come some churches have beliefs that seem so different from, from others? Well, a lot of those churches, their statement of faith is not that all of Scripture is inspired, but parts of Scripture, and they pick the parts of Scripture that match man's worldview philosophy. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? Number two, 
Here's the second one. It says this. We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take a look at Matthew 28. You should know this. You're very familiar with this one. There'll be many scriptures. But here's one that informs that out. By the way, um, many Bible students would say this is a creedal statement as well. That Jesus gives and the early church uses it. And it's been used since then of a creedal statement of belief of what God has left us here on mission. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But I want you to notice, almost everybody around the globe, when they baptize, almost everybody says, in the name of what? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Why are they saying that? From this verse, why are they saying that? It's a creedal statement, right? But by the way, but just to notice something. People say, I don't get, how can God be one but eternally existent in three persons? He's one God, three persons, right? And I would say, well, look, you're baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are, this is one of the texts that we go, wait a minute. There, there has to be one God, but there is unique personhood with each person of the Godhood. When I say personhood, I'm saying they have, uh, they have emotions, they have will, they have responsibility. They each have unique personhood, but there's one God, right? So we believe that. We believe in the, the Trinitarian God. By the way, remember I told you earlier, the statement of faith informs living a life, number four. So what would that even do? So for instance, if we believe in one God eternally existent in three persons, we believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one, but yet they are persons. And when you study the scripture, you, you learn that there's an order to their relationship of how they work. And you start to understand what unity and relationships look like. And I would tell you this, anytime there's a broken relationship in life, I'll tell you this, you probably don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll say this again, you probably don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Like if you're married and you decide that it's okay to start sleeping in separate bedrooms or split up and get separate places and that, you know, and all this kind of really ridiculous stuff, right? If you're married, you know what I would tell you? You probably don't really believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. You haven't really studied it because the Godhead doesn't split up from each other, right? They're continuing to walk in relationship from all eternity past. So do you understand? Belief determines behavior. So we have that as our second doctrinal statement. Um, number three, we believe that Jesus Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary in his true God and true men. Notice we say we believe that Jesus Christ was begotten because we don't believe that Jesus was created and never existed before he came. We believe that Jesus is eternal God and has always existed, right? He just took on human flesh and was begotten. He, he did not come from a man. He came from the womb of a woman and the Holy Spirit. So we call it begotten. So we believe in that. That's a part of our doctrinal statement. Why is that so important? Because if Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't have died for our sin. He couldn't have said no to sin. He couldn't have resurrected the third day. So he had to have been begotten by the Holy Spirit. He was truly God. But he also would have had been born of a man. So he came from the womb of Mary. He had to be a human being. He had to be God and human. He had to be both. If he wasn't human, he wouldn't qualify to be our sin sacrifice. If he wasn't God, he never could have been our sacrifice. Belief determines behavior, right? Why can I tell you today, if you're not in Christ, Repent of your sin, bow the knee, trust in Jesus. Why can I tell you that? 
because Jesus was begotten of God the Holy Spirit and Jesus came from a virgin Mary and Jesus is the God-man who qualified to take away the wrath of God against your sin. Belief determines behavior. Number four, we believe that man was created in the image of God and that he sinned and thereby incurred not only physical death but also spiritual death, which is separation from God. We believe that all human beings are born with a sinful nature and are sinners in thought, word, and deed. Genesis 2.17, Adam was told that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you will die. And by the way, God is so much more gracious than we ever guessed, right? Because does God immediately kill Adam and Eve in the garden? What does he do? Kills an animal. Makes a sacrifice. Covers them, right? God's far more gracious than we're giving him credit for. But we find in Ephesians, look in Ephesians chapter 2. All right, how y'all doing? Y'all okay? Y'all doing good? Would you say if you weren't? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, just so you see this. This is essential for our church, essential for your salvation, essential statements of faith. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, this is, how, this is how dead in our sins you are. This is how, when, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they died, they would die physically. Man, just so you know, you know everybody dies physically, right? We're going to die, right? I mean, man has continued to die. That's part of the curse. But also man died spiritually. And the only way he could be spiritually alive would be through Christ. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. This is an, uh, what an unbeliever is before Christ, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. That's how dead we were in our sins. Spiritually. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together in Christ. In Christ, By grace, you've been saved. So we believe that man was created in God's image, and we sin and have fallen, and not only have physical death, but spiritual death. But verse 5 is so great. that It says in verse 5, You were dead in your transgressions, your sins, but made alive together in Christ by grace you've been saved. We believe that, that by God's grace you can be saved today. You can't save yourself, only Jesus can save you, right? And you're not good enough to earn your way to God. You're, you're not going to put on enough good clothes or do enough good works. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to God. God has already earned, his, has already earned the way towards him. It's kind of like this. Most religions in the world, every religion is, here's a mountaintop and here's God, and you work your way to get to the God on the top of that mountaintop. But we believe in our doctrinal statement that you could never work your way to the top of the mountaintop because you're a sinner. You, are, you have rebelled. You are dead in your sins. You will die physically and spiritually and receive the wrath of God. So what God does is he comes from the mountaintop down to where you are, born as a man, tempted as you're tempted, stands down sin, dies for your sin, absorbs the wrath of God. He comes down from the mountaintop and gets us and brings us up to the mountaintop in Christ, right? That's what happened for me at 16. We believe that. 
Number four, number five, we believe that the Lord Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures as a representative, as a substitutionary sacrifice, and that all who embrace him as their personal Lord and Savior are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably the most... If you're an unbeliever here today, or you're considering Jesus, and you're wondering, what's one scripture I should probably memorize or, or get to know? What's, what would be one of the most important scriptures you tell me to wrap my soul around? I would say probably 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the most beautiful verse in the scriptures. If you're not in Christ, I, I, hope, I hope this one strikes your soul. And this is why we can say, we believe the Lord Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures as a representative and substitutionary sacrifice. And all who embrace him as their personal Lord and Savior will be declared righteous on the grounds of his shed blood. Look at that verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what it looks like. It's called the glorious exchange. My sin for his righteousness, right? On the cross, Jesus offers up, Jesus takes on my sin on the cross. And then he offers up his righteousness in replace. So when I became a believer at 16, the righteousness of God of Jesus' life was Put on my account. At the cross, Jesus took on the unrighteous account of your own sin. That's why when he said, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? That means that he was taking on the wrath of God at that point. And then at the end, he said it is finished because he could only suffer so long as God. He offered up his righteous life. And when you become a believer, what's called the glorious exchange happens. When I became when 16, I exchanged my unrighteousness for his righteousness. It's called the glorious exchange. That's what it's talking about. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Be saved today by accepting the righteousness of Christ. This is what he can put on your account by his own work on the cross. Number seven, we believe our Lord Jesus Christ will personally return and set up his kingdom where he will rule and reign in righteousness. Number eight, we believe that all who receive by faith the Lord Jesus Christ are born again of the Holy Spirit and thereby become the children of God. Of God. I know you all know this verse I'm about to say. You don't have to turn to it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Most of you know it. For by grace are you saved through. And it is the gift of God. It's God's gift. You didn't earn it. Nothing you do to deserve it. God did all the work for it. And by faith through grace you come into that gift. And you're wondering like, is God offering me that gift today? The fact that you're asking probably means that he is, right? If you, can, if you can come to a full realization that you deserve the justice and wrath of God, that you are, a, you are in cosmic rebellion against the God of heaven, but you realize that God's, that, that God's wrath and holiness has been satisfied by Jesus' perfect life, you today by faith can call on him. And you can take communion with us. And you can be baptized next week. And if you don't want to wait till next week, I don't know how clean that water is, but we'll pitch you in. And can't threaten you with heaven. All right, number nine. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, the blessedness of the saved, the retribution of the lost. We believe there'll be a bodily resurrection for all the saved and a bodily resurrection 
for judgment to all the unsaved. So those, that's our creedal statement, our, what we would call our statement of faith. Now we have one called doctrinal distinctives. We don't have time to cover that, but it covers what would be sometimes what would parallel in church history of a confession. Like we have a, a whole statement that says, I'm just going to read to you a couple of the big ones that, that, that catches everybody's eye. We believe the order of headship and submission is God's design for male-female relationships in the home and in the church. In the church, this order prohibits women from becoming elders or pastors or teaching men in assembly of believers. We have one that says we believe God intended marriage to be a permanent singular commitment between a man and a woman. So these doctrinal distinctives, um, we, we, these are teaching positions. We don't say that these are essential for your salvation. We don't say that. But we do say these are our unique confessional teaching positions. But we would say the statement of faith, you'd want to believe that to be a, to be, this is a, those are salvation issues. Now I end with this. Our fourth statement says, I aspire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord as taught in the scriptures. Now let me lay it down. There is no ability to live a life that's pleasing to the scriptures unless you first have Jesus. So, so, till you have the statement of faith, till you have the creedal statement, till you have Jesus as Lord and King, until you believe that He is God come in human flesh, dying for your sins, which you couldn't die for yourself, and rose from the dead. Like, there's no ability to live an, a, a life pleasing to the Lord. You know, there's been so many people that have said, Man, I can't live for Jesus. I just can't. I just can't. Sometimes I would say, is Jesus really your king, right? Or is, is your Christianity really just a reflection that your parents took you to church, that you were baptized as a kid, or that you know a couple of religious things, you memorize some verses? But friends, if you've never been born again, right? You've never been born again. At 16, the wrath of God was coming for my life. I knew it. I knew I couldn't save myself. I knew it. And then all of a sudden, I realized this glorious exchange happened, my sin for his righteousness, and by faith, through grace, God revealed it to me. And I could do nothing in that moment but call out to him. And since that point, he's been changing my life. So that's why we have these doctrinal statements. That's what it means to be a member, statement number three and four. Would you stand to your feet? And as our worship team comes, man, thank you so much. Y'all are the best in the world, right? Y'all are the best in the world. And I mean, we're all sinners, right? But you're the best. Because we don't, we don't preach short messages. We go for it. We try to make sure you get all the feeding you can. So as we close, I want to encourage two things. If you're in Christ, everything you believe is determining your behavior. How you talk to your wife, your husband, your kids, your co-workers, your adult parents, the parents you're taking care of how you handle your finances, how you got up this morning, how you eat, how you pray, how you allocate your time. Everything you do is actually a reflection of belief. It really is. And all of our beliefs determine our behavior. And if you're here and you've not bowed the knee to Jesus, today might be your day. Call out to him. Would you join me? Thank you for a good church with a great statement of faith and great doctrinal distinctives. Thank you for a history of creeds and confessions and catechisms that have helped to protect and bring unity against a worldview that is diametrically opposed to Christianity. It's opposed to you.
If there are somebody here who has not bowed the knee, may today be their day. May they not be able to leave this place until they've talked to somebody about it, until they've confessed, and if they have, may they declare it. Maybe during our edify time, maybe next week before baptism. I don't know, but God, I know you're saving people still. We believe it. Would you do that? Let us praise you as we close in a time of joyful singing to you. And God's people said, Amen.